Our scripture reading is from Revelation 7. Um, Let's stay standing. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes. And made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Libby. Everyone be seated. Uh, Children, if you want to go with Miss Ashley to your class, everyone else, please open up to Revelation chapter 7 if you have a Bible or a phone or some way to look at it as we continue this series. Revelation, a vision we can all understand, unpacking this incredible vision that John has of the throne room of God and what that means for all of history and for um, the reality of the brokenness of this world, which we just lamented, and what God is doing to care for it and to fix it and to redeem it. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, I do thank you that you hear the cries of your people from your throne room, the martyrs and the saints that have gone before us that look at the evil and the injustice that oppress this world, and they ask you day and night, when are you going to do something about it? When are you going to make it end? And Father, you tell them to wait patiently. 
because you are a patient God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Things work perfectly to your plans, even though it's not ours. You sent Jesus as the lamb to make sense of this redemptive plan that oftentimes doesn't make sense to us in our practical experience because we experience evil every day. Whether it's sickness in our midst or relational disappointment, gossip, hatred, injustice, Lord, we ask that you would meet us as we wait and give us patience to endure. We are more than conquerors with you. And Lord, I pray that um, our friend Daniel Bashara have that same hope as he sits in his hospital room this morning. There's one who's overcome the worst form of cancer, the worst sickness. You are a great physician. Lord, for those in this room who feel lost in their jobs and their place in life, you are the good shepherd. You are the one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death into life. Bring life to those who don't feel like living, who don't feel like life is worth it. Lord, I pray for little Augie. He broke his arm yesterday. Lord, I thank you that you care about broken arms as we ourselves have experienced that in our family. Pray for healing for him. I pray that even his injuries teach him more about how much you love him as his parents talk to him and care for him in the midst of that as his brothers do. Lord, thank you for the sweet families in our congregation. May you raise up a new generation of children to love you and to worship you. Thank you for our children's ministry. I pray your blessing upon Ashley. I pray for, um, Lord, those in our midst who are single, who desire to be married, that you give them the patience to wait, that you remind them of your perfect timing and provision. Lord, I thank you that you hear all the requests of your people, that you care about this church and what's going on. Lord, we want to see conversion. We want to see more people coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. And we ask for that gift uh, so that we might be a blessing, not only in our own midst, but in the midst of this community, that people might see a light in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, as I said, we entered into the throne room of heaven, this sacred and holy place where these majestic and cosmic and apocalyptic things are happening, and John is witnessing this, and he's trying to describe it to us by way of uh, abstract painting or a beautiful symphony. We have reoccurring images and themes working towards this incredible crescendo and climax, and things are repeating and happening again. And the best way to think of what's going on here in Revelation is that this is not taking place chronologically, but it's taking place in repetition. It's taking place as if John is taking us on a tour of an art museum and we're looking at an abstract painting trying to depict one central theme or story, which would be God's wrath and judgment, and then slowly taking us into that painting into smaller images to dissect and to um, digest what they mean in the larger whole. And so we keep going in and then focusing out and going back in. Um, the vision that John has is meant to clue us into not only what the future holds, because it's very much about the future, but it's also meant to help us make sense of the present and the evil age and suffering we experience today and have seen throughout history afflicting the church and our people. John saw that scroll in God's right hand containing God's redemptive plan for all of history, 
And he wept out loud because there was no one to read the scroll and unpack what it meant. And what that means is, is that John did not see anyone worthy until the lion presented to him as a lamb is shown to him as one who can make sense of God's redemptive plan. So while we experience the chaos of life and we're trying to make sense of our disappointments, there is one who makes sense of it. The one who holds it perfectly, who looks at it, at your chaos as conquered and also working perfectly according to what he is trying to achieve through all of history, something we cannot comprehend in our own finiteness. And so we have someone who is infinite, who is our ambassador, our representative, our champion. And last week we saw the sixth seal. We're, we're seeing all these seals open, these seals that wrap the scroll, and each, as each seal is popped off, the scroll is able to be opened for the redemptive plan to unfold through all of history. And it's taking place over time, over a long period of time. This is not one moment, I don't believe. And the sixth seal was unleashed, and along with it, the day of judgment or the day of God's wrath, a day that we should all have trepidation about, because it's a day where all of our worst deeds and thoughts will be known to the, this great God. And we all know of the shame that we would feel knowing that everything we've ever thought and done is being put on display for eternity. While God is going to judge the evil he hates by the power and might of the lion and pour out his wrath on those who don't believe that he cares, he will also save those who do trust him by the love of the lamb. That great vision of the lion and the lamb is meant to, that Revelation 5 and 6 is meant to make sense of our entire belief system as Christians. It's huge in what it represents. And then the last verse of chapter 6 asks the incredibly important question. With this great day of judgment coming, with everything being known to God and put on full display, who could possibly stand before God? Who could remain standing? Because the tendency would be, as I'm filleted before God and everything is known, would be to crumble and hide. It says that people will be so terrified that don't trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, they will literally beg the rocks to fall on their heads and crush them and kill them. That would be more bearable to them than to stand before the face of God with everything they've done known. And the truth is, even if you believe in God right now, if you sit there and you believe in God and you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you still know, you probably know more than anyone else how sinful you are, how broken you are, how, fall, how much you fall short of His glory. But according to chapter 7, there's good news, and that's where we are today, chapter 7. There's some who will be able to stand before God and not be destroyed. There are some who will be delivered through that judgment. And so a good, healthy question for you to ask yourself is, will I be able to stand? And how do I know that? And that's what chapter 7 is unpacking. They will, you're not going to be removed from judgment. You're going to experience the judgment. But you're going to pass safely through the judgment. And there's biblical precedence for this. There's Israel passing through the Red Sea. There's Noah passing through the flood. God brings judgment. He doesn't remove His people from it. They see its massive effects on the broken world, the sinful world, but they pass safely through it. So how do we do that? Who can stand? That's the title of our sermon. And for a treat for you guys is uh, we have a simple one-point one point sermon uh, this morning. 
So you can be thankful for that. And those who will stand, the answer is those who are sealed. So then we just need to unpack what that means. What does it mean to be sealed? Who's going to get this seal? And chapter 7 is giving us that answer. So let's look at that. Those who are sealed. Something, again, really important to remember about Revelation, how I'm choosing to interpret it. Not everyone agrees with this. There's a lot of different ways to interpret Revelation. Uh, This is what I think is happening. Again, I don't think that this is happening chronologically. So I don't think chapter 7 actually takes place right after chapter 6. I think chapter 7 is actually telling us more about chapter 6. This is a similar way that Genesis chapter 2 is focused specifically on the day day that man was created, man and woman. And so I think 7 is going back and it's talking to us about this great day of judgment and what's going to happen and who's going to be able to survive it and who's going to pass through it. What this means is is that I believe these 144,000 people are not actually a group of literal 144,000 people who come after some specific moment in time after all these seals are opened. It also means that what's taking place here is not just a future event, but something that has a past and a present and a future reality to it. Look with me at verse 1. It says, After this I saw four angels. These are the, the... The four angels we talked about, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse last week. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the tree, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the vision is of these four angels, you know, if, it, um, if you laid out history, you know, like a, like a map, like a flat piece of paper, and there were angels on each corner, it's almost as if they're pulling back and stretching it out to, to keep God's judgment from being poured up, out upon that creation. They're, they're withholding it until a certain time and a certain period. And there's another angel who's reminding them, don't pour it out yet. So while judgment is taking place in different ways throughout time, throughout history, God judges sin in different ways, there is an ultimate day in which He will judge it all finally. And that's what these angels are withholding from creation because once it happens, it's going to be cataclysmic. And he says, don't do this until all of these people are sealed. So what does it mean to be sealed? The idea here is really to be set apart. It's by having a name written on you, showing whose property you are, who you belong to. And what's interesting is, as these people are sealed, in chapter 13, Satan has those people that he is going to seal as well. So you're either sealed by the beast, or you're sealed by the lion and the lamb. No other two ways about it. And God is about sealing His people and rescuing them, and that's what's happening here in chapter 7. And it means that they're going to be set apart for eternity, earmarked to show whose possession they are. A similar vision happened in Ezekiel chapter 9, when God called Ezekiel to see uh, the abominations that Israel had been involved with, with being part of ritual prostitution and uh, human sacrifice and worshiping these terrible idols and all their awfulness. Ezekiel is shown the the depravity of the people of Israel and how far they've moved away from God and their unfaithfulness. 
And God says, go out and mark or seal on the foreheads of men who remain obedient, who have not given themselves to this idolatry. Put a mark on their foreheads so that I will recognize who they are and they will be spared the judgment that I'm about to pour out on Israel. So again, there's precedent for it. Later in Revelation 14, John will also tell us that these 144,000 will stand with Jesus on the top of Mount Zion with Jesus' name and God's name written on their foreheads. What this saying is, if you are in Christ, you're united with Him, God sees this eternal mark on you. you cannot, it's, a ta- it's tattooed on you. You can't erase it. You can't get rid of it. He's put it there to mark you as His possession because the Scriptures tell us that Jesus has purchased us by His blood. He's made us His own beloved children. We've been adopted into the family of God as outsiders and enemies redeemed and reconciled to the Father by the work of the Son on our behalf and for the Father's glory. And this work of sealing us means that we're earmarked as those who've been saved. It's a permanent tattoo of sorts written on our foreheads letting God know who we belong to. And God is spending the last days from Jesus' ascension until His return saving or sealing as many as He has determined to save or seal. And the judgment will not come until that happens. Again, Matthew chapter 24 is important here. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So a major part of God's redemptive plan is saving everyone He's decided to save throughout history. And the end will not come before that. Revelation 6 told us the martyrs were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were being killed as they themselves had been killed. And here's the application for us. This means that God's plan can be completely trusted. He's working the plan, and He's working it to perfection. It's not as if things are just open-ended and happening chaotically although it seems that's how we're experiencing it from this side of heaven. That's not how God is experiencing it. So I think that the application there is natural and understandable that there is great comfort in trusting the God of Christianity. And it's not based upon you making sense of it. It's not based upon you manipulating or moving the parts around in order to make life work better. You can surrender and say, I'm not good at this. (laughs) I'm not good at controlling life. I'm tried so hard, and I'm full of anxiety and worry and fear. And God is saying, bring that to me. I'm not mad at you. You don't need to feel ashamed of that. That is the experience of every human being. You just need to admit it. I'm the one who's in control. So there's great gospel freedom here. That's the beauty of what's being depicted to us. And you imagine the original audience who is reading this, who is being fed to lions and enduring suffering that's pretty unimaginable to us. It's really when life is most difficult that these kind of truths become most alive to us. When life is most comfortable and things are working perfectly and we've got everything we need, we're just like, oh, that sounds really good. Okay. But some of us need to cling to this this morning as our hope. And then John hears um, this 144,000 who will be sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel, and it raises the good question, why 144,000? What's up with this number? 
Well, again, you know, as you all have been able to tell from my interpretation of Revelation, I think these numbers are more symbolic than they are literal. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses think that there was 144,000 people who were saved in 1935, and they have a special place in heaven, and everyone else will not be able to attain to that place. So there's different ideas about what this number means. Some people think this is a literal 144,000 Jews who will be uh, set apart and separated to proclaim the gospel to people after the rapture and Jesus comes back, and there'll be a time period where, um, where those who are left behind will have a chance to come to know Jesus. So there's different ideas. Now, I think because we see the number of completion and the number seven and the number 12 over and over in this repetitive abstract picture that is oftentimes symbolic, uh, for the most part in Revelation, I think 144,000 is representative of the re completely redeemed church from Old Testament to New Testament. And here, I'll give you some reasons why I think that. Um, I didn't just think that that sounded like a really good idea. Um, the 12 tribes of Israel mentioned here. So the 12 tribes of Israel mentioned over a dozen times throughout Scripture, and they're almost always in a different order or a different list or different names or omitted or excluded from the list. So it kind of changes a lot. And this is the one list in all of the Scriptures that alludes to the Gentiles being included in the people of God. And how do I know that? Well, Interestingly enough, the tribe of Dan is actually not included here. It's included in all the other lists of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it's not included here. And instead, who is included in this list are the sons who came to, from, to Joseph through his concubine, who was a Gentile. So they weren't 100% they weren't Jewish. They were mixed in blood. They represent the Gentiles being grafted into the people of God. And the reason Dan's excluded is because he, Dan, the people of Dan and Ephraim actually participated in leading God's people into idolatry in Judges chapter 18, and they're receiving their judgment. They're not included in the list. In their place are the tribes of Joseph and Manasseh. Manasseh is a son of Joseph and not of Jacob. Interestingly, he's included, but not Ephraim, who was also a son of Joseph. And then Gad and Asher and Naphtali are also included here as significant because they're all born of Jacob's concubines refers to Gentiles being included in the covenant promise. They're inserted ahead of the legitimate sons of Israel. So this list of 144,000 people includes non-Jews. That's the point. That's really significant because that's showing that God's plan, even from the Old Testament through the New Testament, has always been to include every nation, tongue, and tribe. And these people are representative of the whole, Old and New Testament combined. We don't need to distinguish those two people as different people. It also means that the Christian, that the Christians, um, the Christian church is to be joined to Old Testament Israel. It, Paul talks all about this in Romans and Galatians. Here's what he says: A believer in Christ is a true Jew. So we're a Jew, we're Jewish spiritually, okay, in the way that we relate to God. Gentile Christians are grafted into the olive tree of Israel. The Christian church is the Israel of God. Abraham was set apart to be the father of all, not just the circumcised, but also the uncircumcised. These are Paul's words. All those who walk in faith, believing in the promises of God. Abraham is the father of many nations. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're Christ's own, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
you are Abraham's offspring. We know that that doesn't happen physically. There's a spiritual reality to that. Another evidence for us here is that this is not just the Jewish people being talked about as John sees it. You look in verses 9 through 17, it shows us that John also saw millions of other people following this representative group from every nation, tongue, and tribe, a multitude. And while there are 12 tribes, there's also times 1,000, and so we get this 144,000, and we get this grand multitude of people that can't even be numbered that are falling behind them. So it's just this massive group of people from all over the world throughout all of history that are coming to worship God, that are being sealed and protected from this final judgment. Not, again, to be removed from it, but to pass safely through it. So where the ark was Noah's way through, the cross is our way through. The cross is our ark. And we are grafted into Christ to pass safely through by His blood, which marks us as the redeemed. This is how Christianity works. This is what we believe in. These are the nuts and bolts of it. That's why it's important that we confess it often. It also means that we are a fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. When he said, you will be a blessing to the nations, we are a part of that. That is not just an immediate application to those, literally, to those people literally in that time. It's for people for all time. And John says that all of these people will cry out to God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To our God. They're all claiming that salvation has come through this one God. And while they're crying that out, the angels are confirming it right after. They're having a worship service. Amen, the angels keep saying. And amen means truly, truly. This is true. This can be trusted. And if it can be trusted by them, it should be trusted by us as well. John is seeing all those who will pass through the great tribulation in these last days. These are the people that can stand. So I'll, I'll close with this. How do you know if you're one of these people? So during the Great Awakenings, there were huge amounts of people being converted, and a majority of them were legitimate, but there was worry that a lot of people were kind of, kind of social conformity, people just kind of being caught up in the mass movement and maybe confessing that they had become believers and they really weren't. And Jonathan Edwards was really struggling with this. He was like, you know, I'm seeing people confess and get baptized, but then not live a, a, a lifestyle that I would say is conducive of actually being a Christian. So how do we like distinguish who is actually becoming a believer and who's not? And he, he wrote this book, you know, Edwards is known for his incredibly long titles to his books that are not trendy or cool at all. And he wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God riveting reading, but it is actually really helpful. And he says this, he says that those who esteem and appreciate Jesus for who he is, those who oppose evil and are committed to turning from sin and evil in their life, who have a love and a trust for the word of God and want to read it and study it and proclaim it and know more about it and teach other people about it, who love their neighbors, who think outside of themselves or putting the needs of others above their own, and know that God has called them to that, those are the ones who have the distinguishing marks. Those are the distinguishing marks. Those are the ones who are sealed. So it's not that complicated. Ask yourself, 
Is the Word of God truth to me? Does it guide my life? Is it a lamp unto my feet? Do I long to know more of who Jesus is? Do I long to tell my neighbors, even no matter how good or bad of, of it, as you are, is it your heart's deepest desire that others would know this same Jesus too? Do you love the people of God? Do you look to serve your neighbor? These are great interrogative questions to ask yourself. Have I been sealed by the blood of Jesus? But even more than that, do you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Is your trust in Him motivating you in all those other areas? If it is, then you will pass safely through this judgment. You are part of this distinguished people of God. But if that's not true for you this morning and you're not sure about that, then you don't have this assurance. You don't have the assurance of Revelation 7. And I long for the people at Flat Rock to have that assurance. That assurance is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that those who are in Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then Jesus goes on to say, he says, you know if you have him, the Holy Spirit, by his effects on your life and your commitments and your allegiances. In John 5, 24, he says, the way you know if you have the Spirit is the same way you can tell if the wind blows, by if things move or not. You know the wind's blowing because you see trees moving. You know you have the Holy Spirit if he's moving you. Do you move closer to Jesus? Are you moving in the direction of your neighbor? Then the wind is blowing and the Holy Spirit is active. If you're staying put, isolated, living for yourself, your own selfish ambitions, then the wind may not be moving because you are standing still. That is a healthy, sobering interrogation that we can all afford to ask ourselves to interrogate our own hearts this morning. Are you moving towards God or away from Him? Are you known or are you hiding? Are you affecting things around you or just sitting still? So if you're alive and moving in the power of the Spirit and obedience to the one true and living God, loving your neighbor, pursuing God's people by the power of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, then then we go to this table together as the family of God. That's what this table is representing, that we stand around it together around that singular hope. The Holy Spirit is the power that moves us. And we come to rest in Christ, we come to surrender and to bring all those worries and those anxieties about you trying to control life and making it work apart from the Spirit, to surrender and to be reminded of what actually gives you power in life. And in order to begin our time at the table this morning, we're actually going to spend some time in confession. I think that's appropriate. I think it's always helpful to do this when we come to the table. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll confess together.